Hey guys, Pastor Jurgen here. I'm so glad you're tuning into one of our powerful messages that is guaranteed to absolutely elevate your life to another level. At Awaken, we only want to preach fresh, real, powerful to help you grow stronger in your walk with God, develop your faith so you can take more territory. I'm praying that God blesses you and enriches your soul as you listen to this amazing word from God. God bless you. Well, we're in a um, new series called Reborn. Reborn is sort of... Um, in, uh, in light of our Cherish Conference coming up for all of our ladies. Um, the theme is His Masterpiece for our Cherish Conference. And, you know, it's awesome, but pretty girly. So we can't have His Masterpiece be the, the church series because then all the guys would tune out. So it's, it's Reborn, all right, Reborn. Everybody can get on board with Reborn. And, you know, it's, uh, the idea is based on John chapter 3, a conversation that Jesus has with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And um, I preached an entire message on it um, a few weeks ago called Nick at Night, if you want to really dig into that. Uh, I was so prophetic because I preached that before this series came out. So just know that uh, pastor hears from God. But I want to take a little bit of a different angle on Reborn today. The title of my message is The Church Reborn. The church reborn. I want you to come with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to read a very famous conversation that Jesus has with um, his disciples are there, but it's mainly with uh, the apostle Peter. And um, it's going to be on the screen behind me, but uh, it is good to have a Bible in church. So, you know, if you don't have one, bring one next week. But I want to um, read this conversation that Jesus has and, um, and, and draw some things out of it. So again, Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, that's important, we'll come back to that, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, weird transition, but when a man and a woman come together and make a baby, we say that the baby has been conceived, right? Right? Okay. Listen, if you didn't know that, I'm sorry. You just had to hear that from me, okay? Your parents have failed you, okay? If you didn't know that and you're learning that for the first time. And after the baby is conceived in 40-ish weeks, the baby is born. So the church was born at Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. So, so the 12 disciples go into Jerusalem at the command of Jesus. They wait. There's about a little over 100 other people with them. And then the Holy Spirit comes, fills the room. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Peter stands up and gives the very first sermon in the history of the world. And it's so good almost as good as this one's gonna be, that 3,000 people are added to the church in one afternoon, okay? So that's the birth of the church. So if that's when the church was birthed, this conversation in a little town called Caesarea Philippi is where it was conceived. This is where the church was conceived. Give you another analogy, because that's what I do. And it's also just another segue for me to give you guys some good news. We, as of Friday, officially, officially, officially resubmitted our plans into the city after dealing with 80, 80 comments from the city of Chula Vista. To put it in perspective, our El Cajon campus, I see Jared and Mandy here, welcome. Um, same architect in El Cajon, which has Mayor Bill Wells, who loves our church, they came back with two comments. And so, you know, you just made two changes and then construction permit was issued. We had to deal with 80 comments from the city of Chula Vista. We worked our way through all of them and officially resubmitted on Friday. Come on. 
So we're believing for just a couple of weeks of review and then permit issued and off to the races we go. So um, when a, you know, so we submitted our plans, okay? This, there's nothing over there right now. It's actually just a big shell of a building, literally nothing. But it has been conceived in the drawings, okay? And so what is going to be built has already been dictated in the plans. This conversation is the blueprint for the church. So I want to look at three different things. Who was present for this conversation? What was said in this conversation? And where this conversation took place? Because all of them are very, very important. So point number one, if you're taking notes and want a bigger mansion in heaven with a hot tub and a pickleball court, who was present? Point number one, who was present? So we know because it tells us in the passage that Jesus was there, the disciples were there, and Peter, being one of the disciples, was also there. But the main two parties in the conversation are Jesus and Peter. And Jesus says something so incredibly profound that it's easy to miss. He tells Peter, and it says, uh, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah. That means Simon, son of John. Okay, which really, I didn't, you know, you take this kind of stuff for granted, but we do that all the time in English still. Like the name Johnson, like if your name is Bill Johnson, it just means Bill, John's son. Michelson, Michael's son. And if you look at any kind of like Icelandic culture, all their names are like Bjorn Bjornson. And it's just Bjorn who is Bjorn's son. And so when Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, he's just saying Simon Johnson. John's son. Jonah just means John, okay? So he says, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon Johnson. Because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father is in heaven. But then he says, and now I call you Peter. So this is where Jesus changes Simon Johnson, Simon bar Jonah's name, from Simon to Peter. And Peter is where we get Petros, which means rock or stone, petrified. That comes from, from the word rock. And he says, you are a rock. The word Simon means reed, which means blown, you know, into the wind, to and fro. And that was Peter's entire life. Just the wind blew this way, that's the way he went. The wind blew that way, that's the way he went. And then, and then Jesus says, no more are you swayed to and fro, but now I call you Peter because you are solid, immovable, and on you I'm going to build my church. Now, if you are a public relations advisor, you would say, Jesus, this is a bad move. If there's anybody who is a poor representation of the church, it's Peter. This man was, outside of a couple of bright, shining moments, was a disaster. Literally, two verses after this, by the way, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Like, that's Peter's life in a nutshell, you know, Two verses prior, blessed are you. I'm going to change your name and build my church on you. Two verses later, when I look at you, I see the prince of darkness and the father of lies. So, you know, that's Peter. This man constantly screwing up all the time. Rash, impetuous, just a mess. Why would God choose him? It's to tell us that God does not need you to be perfect. And actually, if you think that you need to be perfect for God to use you, it's blasphemy of the highest order because what you're saying is the cross is not enough. What Jesus did was not enough. God can't use me because I still have things I'm working out, blah, 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 blah. That's, it's, it's blasphemy. It's literally saying to God, you are not powerful enough to deal with my dysfunctions. That's why God builds everything on Peter. Because then we have no excuse. This guy was a disaster, an absolute wreck. So you can't say, well, God can't use me because I, you know, fill in the blank with whatever you did last weekend or last week or, you know, 10 years ago, I said something so bad, I'll never forgive myself. You can't say that because God chose Peter. God chose Peter to tell all of us that I am not after your perfection. So what was it about Peter? Three quick things about Peter. I have, I have three points in my three points. It's like three-pointception. 
Three quick things. Peter was committed. He had a revelation of the kingdom, and he accepted instruction. He was committed. He left everything to follow Jesus. And this, this to me has always, it's been one of my, a deeply impactful thing to me because Jesus just says, come follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. And it's like, what does that mean? You know, it's not like Peter, it's like, you can't imply anything from that. You can't just, oh, so fisher of men means I'm going to walk on water. My shadow's going to heal people, you know, like Peter didn't know any of that. He just, all Jesus told him was, just follow me and I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And Peter's like, I don't know what the heck that means, but you're cool and I'm in. And I love that Peter had no idea what he was saying yes to. No idea. It wasn't like Jesus, you know, had a PowerPoint presentation and had some slides saying, Peter, here's, here's all the awesome things you're going to get to do if you follow me. You're going to get to taste wine that I've turned from water. It's going to be great. You're going to be the only person outside of me that's ever going to walk on water. Here's a, here's a picture of it. You know, none of that. Jesus just said, follow me and see what happens. And the thing that I think is so beautiful is Peter had no idea what he was saying yes to, but he knew everything he was saying no to. He knew that it meant time away from his family. He knew that it meant I'm going to have to leave my career and just be completely dependent on this man and his ministry for provision for not just me, but for my family. Peter had a wife and children. Peter knew everything he was saying no to, but had no idea what he was saying yes to. And that's the story of the Christian life. It's the the decision that Katie and I made years ago. We had no idea years ago. We made a decision that we were just gonna follow God with reckless abandon, didn't know what we were saying yes to, didn't, had no idea that this was in our future, had no idea the things that, that we would be able to be a part of, the joy we feel now, the meaning, the purpose, the, the honor it is to, to, to lead a church at, at this point in history in Southern California. We had no clue. We knew everything we were saying no to. We knew everything we were saying no to. I had, you know, I had a young family. I had this, um, you guys have heard the story before about the, the this, startup I was a part of that was in Luxembourg and was authenticating Renaissance art. Like it was the coolest job in the history of earth. And I laid it down because I, I knew that God was pulling on my heart to build this church. Peter was committed. Can you be a person who is committed that says yes to God on faith? Doesn't just say, God, I will commit when you give me a PowerPoint presentation of all the things that you're going to do for me. That's not it. The Bible says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and then all of these things will be added to you. Peter was committed. Secondly, he had revelation. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So it's a little weird because Jesus says, God revealed this to you. And so it kind of feels like, okay, well, Peter didn't have anything to do with it. He just happened to be the one that God chose to reveal stuff to but if you think about it a little deeper, that's not, there's more to it than that. And I'll give you um, a little, a personal example and an excuse to put up some of my wedding photos. So can we put up the first photo? This is uh, me and Katie on our wedding day. Now, the first thing you'll notice is that Katie looks exactly the same. And I have aged about 100 years. And so that's frustrating. Um, Anyway, you're beautiful, babe. You look exactly the same. Anyway, next picture. We got married on the beach in Carmel-by-the-Sea, California. This is Katie's dad, Commander Jim Ward. This is him shaking my hand, giving Katie to me, and this is a look that says, if you screw this up, I will kill you. And I understood the message immediately. Next picture. And so this is where we got married. We got married up on the beach overlooking, um, so, you know, the picture's a little blurry because it's from Facebook a million years ago, but that uh, little green patch up there is a very famous green on Pebble Beach Golf Course. means nothing to me because I don't golf, but apparently it's, you know, right, Nick? It's pretty cool, I think, yeah. Anyway, whatever. But um, that's where we got married. Most, one of the most beautiful places in the country, so gorgeous. Next picture. So we actually went back there a couple years ago, and um, that's where we actually kissed. And you may notice, you may notice, not me and Katie kissing, 
but them. These people ruined my moment. I hadn't been back. This literally was like last year. Like hadn't been there in 10 years. We recreate our wedding kiss and this guy. Anyway, so if anybody's a good Photoshop retoucher, maybe we can. Anyway, now imagine. My, you know, that was my wedding day. It was incredibly special. Katie and I dated for three years. Somehow held on to our purity by the skin of our teeth. And then Katie's walking down the aisle, and I'm seeing, you know, and I'm like, hey, it's been three years. Okay, let's go walk faster. Yes, I do. You do. Great. Let's, let's, let's get to move on. I'm like, no, no, no. Now, imagine if Katie walks down the aisle and the big reveal. I haven't seen her in her dress. I'm going to see my wife looking as beautiful as she ever has for the first time in her wedding dress, and I'm just looking at the ocean. Wow, look at that, a little whale spout. Oh, somebody's putting over there up uh, at Pebble. Hope they're doing good. One of the implications of receiving revelation is that you are looking for it. What does it matter if something is revealed to you and you're looking the other way? The only reason that God was able to reveal things to Peter is because he was looking for it. So my question for you, for me, is are we the kind of people that are looking? Are you looking? You know, years ago I used to complain about Pastor Jurgen. I'm like, you know, he'd, he'd read something, I'd read the same thing, and he would have 19 thoughts and points and accents and stories about the, the same thing that I read. And I would be so frustrated. I'm like, how did he, how did he get all this? And it's because, like, I literally never read my Bible ever. So I'm like, God, why won't you speak to me through the Bible? It's like, dummy, because you don't read it. So if you want to be the kind of person that God reveals the secrets of the kingdom to, you've got to be the kind of person that's looking. Do you read your Bible? And I was even, even convicted... Just a couple weeks ago, you know, I'm, I have, like, I'm watching myself age in, like, it's, it's accelerating really fast, okay? Like, I listen to, like, right-wing conservative political talk shows all the time, and I'm just like, what happened to me? <laughs> it happened, like, overnight. I don't know how or when. I used to make fun of people that did stuff like that and called them losers, and it's me. I don't know why, just when I'm hammering away doing my work, just love, love to have that just droning away in the background. And I was actually convicted because I used to listen to sermons nonstop. And I've just sort of gotten away from it just a little bit. And I've realized that even though my preference may be to listen to Matt Walsh destroy the liberals, it doesn't matter what my preference is. And I've actually just, again, like, have brought myself back and I said, you know what, like, that may be my preference, but I want to be the kind of person that is hungry for the things of God, for the Word of God. And so, yes, I read my Bible, but I want to be listening to other men, other women that have revelation around the Word of God. I want to saturate myself with the things of God, the things of heaven. Are you the kind of person that God can reveal things to because you're actually looking and lastly, Peter accepted instruction, like a lot. Jesus was constantly rebuking this guy to the point of calling him Satan. And Peter didn't leave. He didn't quit. I think if Pastor Jurgen called me Satan, I don't know what I would do. I'd, I might look for a new church. I'd change my mind. But I might look. Jesus called him Satan, and Peter just was like, yeah, sorry. All right, cool. Thank you. Like, cut off some guy's ear in the garden, and Jesus is like, bro, for real? And then takes the guy's ear fragment, 
puts it back on the guy's ear and tells Peter, don't do that. Don't do that. Like Peter and the other disciples are arguing over who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, like constantly rebuke, rebuke, rebuke. But to Peter's credit, he never leaves. He never leaves. Not only does he not leave, he becomes the pillar of the early church. It's, it's very, very first leader. Can you be the kind of person that can accept instruction, even if it's from somebody that you don't like? Oh, sometimes God will speak to you through people that you don't like, and that's when it's the hardest to hear. But you have to understand it's not coming from them, it's coming from God. Can you chew up the meat, spit out the bones, and actually hear from heaven? And listen, when God corrects you, when God corrects you, Yes, it, you know, I'm not going to lie to you and say every time I've ever been corrected in my life, I've just smiled and it's like, you know, rays of sunshine beaming on my face. It sucks, okay? Nobody likes it. But something always happens to me every time where I realize maybe a couple days, maybe a couple weeks after I've, you know, dealt with it, that the correction of God is God saying that there's a destiny in your future that your current character cannot sustain, in order for you to step into all that I have for you, I have to change you so that it won't crush you. That's why you should welcome the instruction of the Lord. That's why every time a leader, a pastor, the Holy Spirit, your spouse, that's the number one source of correction in your life, at least in mine. Can I get an amen from a husband, please? It's not, okay, thank you, goodness. Oh, I thought it was only me, praise the Lord. You should be thankful when God points out a blind spot in you because it means that there's something greater for you. Peter was committed, he had revelation of the kingdom, and he accepted instruction. That's the blueprint for the church, is people like that. Not people who are perfect, have it all together, whose you know, kids are perfectly squared away and stand there like this. It's not, that's not it. The church is built on men and women like Peter who make mistakes, who don't always get it right, but who are committed, who are hungry for the things of God and can accept instruction. That is how the church grows. That was point one. Point number two, that was who was present at this conversation. Point number two is what was said at this conversation. So it's interesting, if we read it, if we read it again, Jesus asked a question. Now, earlier on in Matthew, God, Jesus reads people's thoughts. Like the Bible says that, you know, Pharisees will be thinking something and Jesus just says, oh, you're thinking blah, 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 blah. He can read people's thoughts. So when he asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know something. Okay, God doesn't, he never asks a question because he's unsure. He asks a question for you. He asked questions for me. So why in the world would Jesus say, hey, who's everybody else say that I am? And the answer comes back from the apostles. It's some, it says, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and some say Jeremiah. It's interesting. Why those three people? And what we get is the only glimpse in all of the gospel accounts of what the public perception of Jesus Christ of Nazareth was. And they compared him to John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah. And so, okay, what, what is the common thread between all three of them? And there's, there's not really much. Like, they're all pretty different. There's some, com you know, some commonalities between a couple of them. So, um, you know, John and Jeremiah. John the Baptist, as far as we know, never performed any miracles. There's no record of John the Baptist performing any miraculous signs or wonders same is said of Jeremiah. In all of Jeremiah, we never see him performing any miracles. They're both just mouthpieces for the Lord. Both of them were martyred. John the Baptist was beheaded by King Herod. Jeremiah, there's actually no biblical account of how he died, but we know from Jewish history that he was stoned. Elijah never died. He was taken up into heaven by a chariot. John and Elijah, John the Baptist and Elijah, both of them, um, the Bible says, wore camel hair robes, okay, which is crazy. And they ate wild locusts, both Elijah and John the Baptist. So there's kind of some similarities between a couple of them, but what's the common thread between all of them? All three, 
John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah, you're not ready for this, all of them opposed the political leaders of their day. All of them. John the Baptist publicly rebuked King Herod and said, what you're doing is morally wrong. You're sleeping with your brother's wife, and it got him killed. Elijah stood up to King Ahab, the governmental leader, and said, your wife is wicked, you're wicked. He opposed them publicly. Jeremiah stood up to the king of Israel right before they were exiled into Babylonian captivity and rebuked him, all three of them stood up and opposed the wickedness in the political system of their day. Now listen, if you were cynical, you would say, hey, you're, you're overreading this passage. And that would be true. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that Jesus put that in there to say, go and vote. That's not what I'm saying. But you can't read this and not see that all three of them, the people that, 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 the public compared Jesus Christ to were politically outspoken people. The church has lost its way and has relegated politics. What, what, what the church says now is that politics is a worldly, ugly, messy game of self-exaltation and has no place for people concerned with heavenly matters. That's the, the general position of the American church, that politics is, is of the world. We're not doing that. The only goal of the church should be to save souls and make disciples. Now, the problem with that, actually, I had, I had a, a debate with a, a good friend of mine. He's a great guy, um, a pastor of another church in, in another part of the country. And he, um, you know, we were kind of sparring back and forth on our church's political outspokenness. And he, his big defense was, the, the mission of the, like Jesus said, the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. That's it. That's the mission. So anything outside of that, anything outside of that is detracting from the mission. And so then, you know, we have what the, the term is a seeker friendly church. And it's talking about people who are seeking. And so we need to have churches that are welcoming for people that are seeking. And we can't say anything that would potentially offend them and cause them to not want to come back to church. We can't do that. The problem is we call them seeker-friendly churches talking about people that are seeking. But that's not what it says. It says that Jesus came, the Son of Man came to seek and to save. It's not people that do the seeking. Jesus does the seeking. Jesus does the seeking. There's no such thing as a seeker-friendly church unless you're talking about a Jesus-friendly church, and I sure hope your church is Jesus-friendly. And so what we've done is we, the church has diluted itself, and it's out of a spirit of fear that says, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to put my name on the line, my reputation on the line. I don't want to be disliked. I don't want to be called a bigot. I don't want to be called da 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 But it's out of a spirit of fear. And there was a... Uh, um, series of newspaper articles that came out in Coronado sort of reporting on our church. And there's, there's this one kind of main ringleader opponent on the island of our church. And, and he said something really interesting that, that I thought was very telling. He said, um, you know, if Awaken wants to come and spread the teachings of Jesus, which are to be a servant, to teach us to love our neighbor, um, and to hold peace in our hearts, those were the three things he said, then I, then I would welcome Awaken. But anything outside of that, you know, is bigotry and hatred and blah, 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 blah. And so what people do is they boil down the message of Jesus into the fluffy stuff that we hold peace in our hearts, we serve others, and we love our neighbor. And of course, of course, those are three of the, the foundational components of Jesus' message. Of course, I'm not refuting that. Yes, Jesus said you can boil down and summarize all the commandments by love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that. He said that summarizes all of the commandments. But that's not the exhaustive list of all of the commandments. Did you know that there's over a thousand individual commandments in the New Testament? A thousand. The Great Commission the mission of, that we have as the church, Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, comma, 
Everybody likes to period right there. It's not. It's a comma. It says, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. That's the mission of the church. There's a thousand commands in the New Testament. You can't boil it all down to be nice to people. That's not it. That's not it. There's a thousand commands in the New Testament. Third John says to spread the truth, command. Romans 12, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Command. A command is to overcome evil. Ephesians 5 says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Command. A command from God Almighty to the New Testament church is to expose darkness in our world. The church has lost its way in this regard. And the church thinks if we assimilate into culture, we look like culture, we smell like culture, then we'll get people in the doors, and then we'll, we'll sneak attack them with the gospel message. And I saw, I wish I could take credit for this analogy. It's not mine, but I think it's brilliant. Imagine that this pulpit, well, we'll just say the Bible because it's the word of God. Let's say that my Bible, this is God himself, okay? And here is the church. And it's the church's job to be as close to God as possible, right? And then you would have the world. Hopefully, the world is further away from God than the church, hopefully. Now, it's very easy to see that the world is very steadily moving away from God, right? You can see that. Now, you can be fooled if as the church, we're looking at the world and just keeping our distance from the world because the world is moving away from God. And so we're still keeping our distance from the world, but what we don't realize is that we are moving away from God at the same rate as the world. Instead, the church can't look at the world to dictate its closeness to God. The church has to look to God. As the world moves away from God, the church should be moving towards God. And so the, the, the delta, the difference between the world and the church should be growing over time, not staying the same. And what we see is the church wanting to assimilate the church into the world so that we look like the world, smell like the world, and then we can, we can sneak attack them, you know, with, with the gospel message, and that's what's going to work, and it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's, it's interesting because God speaks the entire world into existence. He speaks, you know, let there be light, and let there, you know, birds and fish and horses and blah, 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 blah. But God doesn't speak man into existence. He gets his hands dirty. The Bible says that God puts his hands in the dirt and fashions man out of the dust of the ground. When it came to you and me, God didn't just speak from a distance. He actually put his, rolled up his sleeves, put his hands down in the dirt and made us. We must be, we must be truth tellers in this world. We must overcome evil with good. Now listen, I'm about to, I'm about to ruffle some feathers, but it's important. I want to talk about some of the cultural norms that we're seeing in the world today. I want to talk for a second about the abortion industry. Did you know that 75% of all abortion clinics are in minority areas? 75%. It's because Margaret Sanger, the mother who started, plan, or she wasn't a mother, the mother of Planned Parenthood, she was a eugenicist who literally is quoted as saying, I want to eradicate the Negro population. That's what Margaret Sanger said, okay? Planned Parenthood, the abortion industry, is built on population control, all of it. And it's mo we're moving away from surgical abortions, and now the, the new norm is chemical abortions induced by a pill called RU486. 40%, as of right now, 40% of all abortions are chemical abortions. Now, this is not a conspiracy theory. You can go look this up. It'll take you two seconds, okay? So don't come at me with, oh, conspiracy theory, blah, blah. No, no, no. This is verifiable fact. RU486, the abortion pill, was developed by a, a subsidiary of a pharmaceutical company called Hoist AG. It's a massive, massive billion-dollar pharmaceutical company in Germany. This company, Hoist AG, emerged from the dismantling of a company called IG Farben. You may ask yourself, 
well, why was IG Farben dismantled so that Hoist AG could emerge? It was dismantled when, the, uh, when they were convicted of war crimes and crimes against humanity because they developed a chemical called Zyklon B, which was the cyanide gas used in the concentration camps to kill millions and millions and millions of Jews and Jewish sympathizers. That's the same company, the same company that has formulated RU486, the chemical abortion pill. Do you not see that it is a luciferic spirit of death that wants to snuff out human life in any way that it can. How in the world can the church not talk about this? And listen, and here, here's, what, here's what the critics would say. They would say, you're alienating people who have had an abortion, maybe men who have paid for an abortion or, you know, coerced their partner to have an abortion. But it's, it's, it's in the way that we as the church handle these matters pastorally. And I want you to know, so years ago when I was in high school, I was 16 years old, I was sexually active with my girlfriend, and she called me one day and said, hey, I'm late. And we freaked out, 16 years old, both of us. And I, I, over the phone, I just said, do you want me to call the doctor? And we both knew exactly what that meant. I wasn't talking about a prenatal specialist. And she said yes. And so I made an appointment. And it turns out, you know, she ended up starting her cycle and, and you know, didn't have to. But the point is, is I made that decision. I would have gone through with it. I'm just as guilty, okay? It is not about condemning people that have had abortions. It's not about condemning men that have paid for abortions. It's not about that. It's about exposing the spirit behind it that has preyed on people in compromising situations to snuff out human life. We don't, we're not angry at people. We don't condemn people that have walked through the abortion is, is, is tragic. It causes immeasurable trauma in women and men who have, have had abortions or who have funded abortions or whatever. Our, as the church, our job is to handle those matters pastorally with care and remind people of the redeeming, redemptive love of Jesus Christ while we expose the wickedness in the spirit behind it. Let's talk about the transgender movement. The transgender movement was started, you guys know the word gender is like, like 40 years old. Like for thousands of years of human existence, gender was, it was like 1955 that Dr. John Money introduced the term gender as some fluid social construct. Okay, it's very new, very new. Biology, been around for thousands and thousands of years. This idea of gender, brand new, brand new. And the guy that coined it, Dr. John Money, was a sick twisted lunatic, okay? This sex psychologist, um, his most famous experiment was there were two twins, two boy twins, XY chromosomes, both of them. And they, um, uh, uh, when they had a, essentially a botched circumcision, and so Dr. John Money saw it as an opportunity, and he said, we're gonna convert one of these boys to a girl, and we're gonna prove that we can actually change a boy to a girl. And it was perfect for this crazy psychopath because he was a twin. And so he actually had the perfect control in the male twin. So he could have one of them turn to a girl, one of them stay a boy, and it's like the perfect scientific control case. The problem is, uh, they were the, the, the Reimer twins, um, Bruce and David, I think, and Bruce was changed her name was or his name was changed to Brenda, and try as they might, this girl, air quotes, if you're podcasting, I'm doing air quotes, was not a girl. It was a little boy, and they gave this boy, you know, puberty blockers, all kinds of sex hormones, um, surgically tried to, you know, create a female sex organ, and this little boy was miserable, absolutely miserable, always uh, wanting to, to play with the boys, run around and play sports, but was just suppressed by this doctor, would have to, uh, and then also, by the way, came out years and years later that the doctor was sexually abusing both of the twins, boy and, 
you know, stuck between boy and girl. Both of the boys ended up committing suicide later in life. That's the foundation of the transgender movement. When the foundation of the abortion industry is Margaret Sanger, a eugenicist who wants to eradicate black people from the earth, and the foundation of the transgender movement is a pervert. Listen, this guy, Dr. John Money, is quoted, quoted in a scientific journal as saying that he believed if a 10 to 12-year-old child had um, a mutual sexual desire for someone in their 20s or 30s, that there's nothing pathological about that and it's totally fine. That's the founder of the transgender movement. How in the world can the church not stand up and expose this kind of evil? This is the kind of evil that preys on young men and women who are confused, who are lost. It preys upon them and it destroys their lives. We as the church are negligent, we're irresponsible, and we are wicked if we do not expose this kind of darkness. Again, treating people that have that have been seduced by its lies with care and compassion and accept, acceptance. We pray for them. We impart the spirit of God. We tell them about how Jesus can save them, redeem them. He can heal them. But we do not compromise when it comes to the wicked spirit that's behind it. Can somebody say amen? Sorry, that was heavy, but important. Lastly, where this conversation took place. This one's not near as, you know, you're going to like this one. It's really interesting because the Bible says that this conversation between Jesus, the apostles, and Peter occurred in Caesarea Philippi. Um, Katie and I actually had the, the privilege of going to Caesarea Philippi. We got to go to Israel, and um, most of Israel, if I was honest, is not super pretty. It's desert, arid. But if you go up to northern Israel, I mean, like, instantly it turns into, like, lush jungle and forest. I mean, babbling brooks and rivers and waterfalls. It's beautiful. So Jesus takes his disciples up into northern Israel, Caesarea Philippi, after John the Baptist is beheaded. And that is where he has this conversation with them. It's in this, this town way, way, way up north in the Golan Heights. And the town of Caesarea Philippi was known for this one specific geographic feature. And I want you to put that last picture up there. This is, um, I think, do we have that picture, that last one? With like the rock? And yeah, there it is. So this is where that conversation takes place. Katie and I stood right here. That big cave you see with the people there, that was where the God of Pan was worshiped. So you can't really see it from this picture, but that's a giant cave that just goes down into a massive abyss with, with water, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of feet down. You can't even see the water down at the bottom. People would hurl their live children into that cave to sacrifice them to the god Pan. And it was believed that if they would sacrifice their children to this god, he would bless them with, you know, more fertility, which is kind of crazy. You're asking God to bless you with fertility by killing the product of your fertility, that doesn't seem very smart. Anyways, this is where Jesus has that conversation. And so here is where he says, on this rock, I will build my church. And he was talking to Peter, but it's impossible not to understand that he was also saying, using this as imagery, that on top of the world's wickedness, on top of the darkest of the dark, I'm gonna build my church that even in places where the worst of the worst, child sacrifice occurs, my church, my church will supersede it. My church will overcome it. That is exactly where this conversation happened. You also can't help but notice, not only is there a giant rock, there's also a river that flows out of it. And so the implication, this is why Israel is so important, okay? Because this is where, like, I would never have known this until I went here. I, was, I stood right there in this place. I saw where this conversation happened and you can't help but notice, not only is there this massive rock, there's also a river coming out of the rock. And the picture that Jesus is painting for his disciples and for Peter is not only is the church a rock that's solid, immovable, where the truth is preached, it's also a river. It's a river that goes out that nourishes, that waters, 
that brings life. Everywhere there's, there's a river, there's life. Everywhere there's moving water, there's life. And if the church is just a rock, if we just go around and bash people over the head with the Bible and tell people that they're sinful and tell people that, you know, da 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 then that's only half of the picture. If we're just a river and we just go around sprinkling fairy dust and telling people, hey, it's okay, God forgives you, God doesn't care, then we've missed it. The church must be a rock and a river. A rock when it comes to the truth that we will not waver, we will not capitulate, we're not gonna be chiseled away by the culture of the world, but also a river that goes out into the world, into our community, that nourishes people, that brings life everywhere we go. That's the picture of the church. Can we stand to our feet as we come to a close? And my question for all of us, why don't we just close our eyes? And my, my prayer for today is that every Christian in the room would make a decision to renew your conviction of what it means to be a believer, of what it means to be a part of the building of God's church. It does not mean to just show up to this place on Sundays and Wednesdays. I mean, I'm glad you're here. Thank you. But that's not it. Can you be the kind of person who is desperate for revelation from heaven, who looks for it, who reads your Bible, who prays, Pray with your, do you pray for our city with your spouse? Do you actually take the time and, and not just pray, Lord, give me, 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 give me. Do your prayers actually extend outside of you? Do you intercede for other people? Do you pray for your friends? It's really hard for me, but I pray for that guy on Coronado. I pray for him a lot, actually. I pray for him that he would have a Saul to Paul encounter, that he would just like, like the scales of his eyes would fall off. I don't hate him, he's not my enemy. The Bible says that my enemy is, is not flesh and blood, but the principalities, the dominions, the, that's my enemy. Are we the kind of people that pray for people outside of just our own little microcosm, our own? Are you the kind of person who can take instruction? And when, when God speaks to you and says, hey, this needs to change in your life, you don't just, that takes courage. The, the, the most courageous prayer you can pray is Psalm 139, search me, O Lord. Find every wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the most courageous thing you can ever pray. Are we the kind of people that will actually expose wickedness? Not shy away from it because what will our, what will our coworkers think? What will, my, what will my clients think? You don't understand. My livelihood comes from my clients and my clients find out, you know, that I... Who's your provider? Who is your provider? Is it your clients or is it God Almighty, Jehovah Jireh? Do you trust that God will provide for you if you actually speak the truth? Can we be the kind of church that exposes wickedness but leads those victims of wickedness to the redemptive power of Jesus Christ? That's what the church is supposed to look like not going around sprinkling fairy dust and telling everybody that God forgives them. And of course, God forgives people for everything. God has forgiven me for all kinds of crazy stuff. But that doesn't mean that I just go on sinning so that God can keep forgiving me. That's not the way it works. Why don't we just bow our heads? I wanna just pray for us as a church family. God, I thank you for the gift of your church that you invite us into a divine partnership that you're all powerful. You can do whatever you want. You don't need us. You don't need us but you invite us to be a part of the telling of the greatest story ever told, that the Christian faith, exactly as Jesus, you said it would, that we would be your, the disciples would be your witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here we are in Awakened Church, San Diego, in, in Eastlake, in Southern California. The church has gone indeed to the ends of the earth. And God, we, we, we pray for more. We pray that all of Eastlake, all of Chula Vista, all of Bonita, all of National City, all of San Ysidro, all of Coronado, all of Imperial Beach would come to know you, that, that the divorce rates in South San Diego would be lower than anywhere else in the country, that suicide rates would, would be lower than anywhere else in the country. 
nobody, nobody will jump off of the Coronado Bridge ever again in Jesus' mighty name, God, that we will see uh, the, the levels of, of drug use plummet in South San Diego, that we will see levels of depression and anxiety among our young people plummet, the, the levels of, of self-mutilation in, in our teenagers will plummet in South San Diego because we, as your church, are gonna go through a rebirth. We're gonna commit again to being courageous. We're gonna commit again to being the kind of people that can receive instruction. We're gonna commit again to being the kind of people that are hungry for your word, that are hungry for the things of God. We're gonna commit again to being committed. God, to, to, to come to church, to, to, to go to the conferences, to, to do all the things, God, that, 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 that are being committed to the building of this house, that, that this is not the, you know, the only church in, in our city, that there's a bunch of great churches in San Diego, but this is the one that you've called us to, that awakened church, that, that, that you have given awakened church a mantle to be a lampstand in the darkness. And God, far be it from us to snuff out that light that we will be, we will be a light shining bright on a hill for all to see in South San Diego. God, we declare that families are gonna come from all over, broken, without hope, destitute, lost, on the verge of divorce, kids a mess, and the church is gonna put them back together. The church is where they're gonna find healing, and we're your instruments, we're your vice regents, your ambassadors in the earth. God, we thank you for it. We commit again in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen, amen. Wow. What an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen, for more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages, information about upcoming events, and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.